I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. Despite creating some of the greatest recorded art of the 20th and 21st centuries, Bob Dylan, by his own admission, has never been comfortable inside the walls of a recording studio. Preferring a cut-and-run method of recording over months of laborious, exacting production, Dylan has managed, often as not, to shotgun marry his artistic visions to that bare-bones approach of getting those visions committed to tape. But, as every Bobcat knows, sometimes different forces, both within and without, led to a finished record that didn't quite seem to live up to its potential. No album in the Dylan canon was affected more by these forces than 1983's Infidels. As remarkable as that album is, the release of the first three volumes of the Bootleg series in 1991 showed that some absolutely stunning material was considered for the record, but then ultimately rejected. Those of us on the other side of the mirror have always wondered just what happened in the making of Infidels. A new book, Surviving in a Ruthless World, Bob Dylan's Voyage to Infidels, chronicles the long, winding road Dylan took to making that record. Joining me to talk about this remarkable book is its author, Terry Gans. Hi, Terry. Hi, Robert. It is great having you here. I am very excited to talk to you because, as I told you off air, I absolutely love this book. Thank you. It's just a great, great read. And so before we even talk about the book or anything involving the book, I got to start the show where I would typically start any episode is how did you become a Bob Dylan fan? Well, I always liked music, even as a little kid. My mother always had records and some of them when they weren't uh, Jackie Gleason or Benny Goodman, I could <laughs> I could sing along with that. She had uh, Weaver's records, uh, Goodnight Irene. Uh, the Sloop John B, the Roaming Kind, or the what, whatever it was called, Dark and Orange. Anyhow, um, we always had music around, uh, whether it was on a 45 record player or on the radio. And as I got older, I got my own tastes. When I got to high school, it was early in what was called the folk music boom, which seemed like it lasted forever when you were that age, but was really only <laughs> a couple years. And you heard things by uh, Judy Collins and uh, Joan Baez early on, and of course, and Peter Paul and Mary. Uh, radio. I grew up in the Washington in Washington D.C., and one of the radio stations there switched to a folk music format in around 1962. And that same radio station later on gave uh, Howard Stern his first big market trial, <laughs> uh, but back then they were in folk music. And I would listen to this, and it was it was unusual songs uh, compared to what was on the radio there that we're still getting, uh, yeah, 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 I go to a swing in school, or Bobby Rydell, Frankie Cannon, all those kind of things. That was uh, 61, 62. To me, it was kind of the dark ages of popular music. <laughs> and folk music was something different. And liking folk music... I wound up liking certain songs, certainly Blowing in the Wind came along uh, whenever Peter, Paul, and Mary put that out. I'm guessing it was sometime in late 62 or 63. And I liked song that song, but the song I really liked, which came later, later was Don't Think Twice. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was a wonderful song. And I don't know why I became aware or wanted to become aware of, of you know, where did this song come from? We didn't have any awareness, really, of songwriters at the time. I mean, you heard of uh, Hoagie Carmichael or Johnny Mercer, but but we really didn't pay attention to that. The singers sang them. Uh, they were playing on the radio, and, and, and that was it. But for some reason, uh, that song made me want to, want to know more. And I, I heard the name Bob Dylan, but I, I didn't know who it was. I just knew the name. And I had my alarm set on that folk music station to get up for school. And that goes off one day and I hear, uh, how many roads must have been? And I'm, I'm thinking, what is this? This is some old man on a porch singing this, this <laughs> song of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And, you know, then I learned that's Bob Dylan. And curiosity gets the best of you. And you go to 
find out, okay, what more has he done? What else would I be interested in? Joan Baez is covering songs at the same time. And, of course, the second in-concert album she did uh, had that long poem by Bob Dylan on the back for Joni. Mm-hmm. And it, it just built on itself. Uh, it was an interest, uh, like the songs more and more, certainly times they were changing, moved, moved up the ladder with that, but didn't do deep dives. I think a couple years after it came out, I became aware of the first album, certainly uh, House of the Rising Sun, I thought was just a beautiful rendition. And the, the other things on it were a little weird, but you grew with it. And in college, I remember being uh, in the dining hall waiting to get in for dinner, and this is probably March of 65, and all of a sudden this thing comes over the, uh, you know, the music they're playing uh, was Subterranean Homesick Blues. And you think, you know, my God, what is that? And so you hear more of that, and you, uh, when the album comes out, you become aware of the album. And Mr. Tambourine Man is playing with the birds, and it all circles back to this guy, Bob Dylan. And that's all you know at that point. That's all I knew was the songs and the music, a little bit of his singing. And then um, in, in July, early July, like a Rolling Stone just exploded out of the, uh, the radio speakers. You know, the rim shot on that drum, and, and that that's it. You're, you're off the diving board and into the deep end of the pool with the whole thing. So I'd say the music came first. Um, uh, we're up to about a uh, like a Rolling Stone. I uh, passed up the chance to see him in concert in November 65 in Cincinnati. <laughs> Sorry about that. My roommate saw it. <laughs> Said he looked like he was really sick, that guy. just deathly white. But... Um, and in the following year, a couple things you made me more aware of the persona, the, the whole buying into the uh, development of the Dylan myths, and that uh, you know that completed the picture. I'd say it was a about a four year process. So you were with him. You, you basically followed him along with all the changes in real time. Everything that you were, I mean, you were experiencing as he was really doing it. That's one of the things that I've. You know, realized that as a fan coming to it much later in life, I, I was able to look at all these eras, all of his periods as, oh, this was just a self-contained thing. But you were going through it as he was really doing it. So you were like folky rock, you know, folky Bob, <laughs> electric Bob, country Bob, further on into the 70s and then, you know, born again Bob. I mean, was there any point uh, that uh, during any of those eras that, that you sort of went away from him a little or did you sort of follow him, uh, you know, your whole life? I'd say that uh, when starting out that first four years, uh, luckily, I wasn't as deep into being a fan as certainly the people that that, uh, were his peers in the village or his fans in the village or those people that, you know, he's a spokesman for a generation. I I never was into that. Right. And I could have fallen for it, but I guess I never was just exposed to it or anything like that. so when the uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues or Like a Rolling Stone came out, it didn't offend me. Right. I just I just thought it was great. Uh, and so going further, no, I I, I love the um, uh, Slow Train and Saved and those records. Uh, I was not crazy about uh, Down in the Groove or Knocked Out Loaded. <laughs> uh, I think Under the Red Sky, if somebody else had produced it, it would have been a much better album. But I didn't turn my back on it. I didn't say, "Well, I'm done with this guy. He doesn't interest me anymore." In the, uh, I thought, I thought Street Legal when it came out. I said, "You know, where where does something like this come from?" <laughs> now go back, go back to Desire, which was strange in its own way. But Street Legal was so uh, the the instrumentation and the word flow and the internal rhymes and the whole thing. It was it was just so unique. So each stage, I found something that really excited me. And around 81, I guess, uh, I became aware and got hooked up with uh, that that early network of people that uh, you could get a cassette tape in the mail after right. <laughs> after several weeks. And, and that just, that broadened it. I mean, there was so much more out there. Uh, going back to uh, the late 60s, um, my interest became heightened, uh, and I write about this in the book. Uh, I was on the college newspaper for a couple years, and I was just hanging around the office one day, and publishers would send books, hoping the 
college editors would review them and uh, that target audience would get turned onto a book. And a book came in one day, nobody else was there. And so I opened in a look at it and it's called Folk Rock, the Bob Dylan story by a couple called Ribicove. And this is sometime early 66. Uh, so I read it and this, this really was a, uh, collating of, of every, not everything, but so much that, and distilling of so much that was known about Dylan then. You know, he was from Hibbing, Minnesota, and he was this guy, and, and the, the various changes he had gone through or was charged with going through up to that point. After that book, which I kept, <laughs> never wrote a review, so sorry, Cy and Barbara. <laughs> um, I started researching in the... Uh, College library, and back then i don't I don't know how old you are, Bob, but back in those early days when we had oil lanterns uh, and there was no <laughs> such thing as internet, in order to do research, there's big books, big green books called the Reader's Guide, and the Reader's Guide came out quarterly and they had supplements, and they pretty much gathered a list of articles that had been written on people or topics and it, it alerted you to magazine articles and you could send, go back through the library and hopefully those magazines would be in the, uh, in the repository and you could look them up. And I found the uh, 1964 New Yorker article uh, by Nat Hentoff mm-hmm. and, and a whole bunch of other things. So I was able to fill in the blanks that the, uh, the paperback had left me wondering about. And I wrote a uh, I wrote a paper for a history class, just pretty much regurgitating what I'd found, you know, not 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 firsthand research. When I went on for a master's uh, degree, same school, my advisor said, well, why don't you expand on what you wrote in that paper? Let's just find a, a an attitude that you can argue about and and develop. So I did that. And uh, the, the premise and I, I took took Bob Dylan up to early 65 and argued against the notion that this this noise about him turning his back on being a protest singer was misguided because if you looked at the totality uh, of what he'd done and what he'd recorded uh, up to that point, whether it was released or not, very little could be characterized as protest music. It was music. He worked in a lot of different genres. And luckily... Uh, about the time I was looking to start this research, an article was in the Washington Post magazine about the Great White Wonder bootleg. And somewhere in that article, it mentioned A.J. Weberman, oh, okay. who at that point ran what he called the Dylan Archives. So I reached out and made contact with A.J. And uh, it's October 69. He had, at the time, so many tapes and things you'd never heard of. Um, the different versions of Visions of Johanna, uh, the basement tapes uh, from that, uh, whatever it was, 10-song acetate, um, the different Please Crawl Out Your Window, and then, <laughs> then all kinds of early stuff that his friend Sandy Gant had uh, liberated or copied from Columbia Records where he, Sandy, had a job. So that 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 allowed me to support the premise that there was so much that Bob Dylan had recorded and sung that wasn't protest music, that that was, um, that was where I was then. I don't know if I even answered a question with that other than <laughs> going on and spewing. But the, uh, the other story I like about that is when we proposed it to the history department as a thesis topic, the chairman of the history department, and I write about this in my book, Surviving in a Ruthless World, Bob Dylan's Wish to Infidels. The chairman of the history department says, that's not history, that's not suitable as a topic, and we plowed ahead, and we got it approved and got it done. And when Dylan won the Nobel Prize, I, I emailed the current head of the history department re, uh, telling the story and just saying validation. <laughs> <laughs> so you live long enough, uh, sometimes good things happen. <laughs> so you, as we were talking about, you were, you, were, you were very accepting of Bob's different phases as they were really happening. Do you remember what your reaction was to Infidels when, when it came out? Oh, right. I loved it. I was, okay. uh, the word I would use is entranced. Okay. And I, th- I think part of it was that was unique in, in actually having a circulating tape of what was going to be an album before it came out, mm-hmm. which I think is almost the last time that happened. 
Um, and it was, uh, it was, the sound was so different and the singing style was so different and the words were so different. I was fascinated by it. And later on, a longer tape came out that included things like Foot of Pride and Blonde Willie Mattel. So then you go and say, as you said, what happened here? Yeah. yeah. What? Whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> so, all right. So, I mean, how did you, how did, how did the book come about? How did you decide to write a book about the, 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 the set, the, the voyage, as you say, to Infinite? <laughs> Well, I'd always been interested um, in this period, and I didn't think, well, gee, I'll write a book someday. And uh, I had an, I had another uh, obligation. I was uh, part of our town commission where I live, and I was about to be term limited out. So I wasn't really, I've never looked for anything to do. Things find me. Uh, <laughs> I don't feel, you know, nervous if I don't have a project. I'm, I'm better off when I do, but I don't, it doesn't bother me if I don't. Uh, but at the same time, I was going to have free time. Uh, the archives was established in Tulsa. Uh, means, motive, and opportunity. Every, everything came together and thinking, well, if I was ever going to do something like this, um, now might be the time. So I applied or made a proposal to the uh, archives uh, about what I wanted to do and see if there was enough there to support a uh, broader study of infidels and a broader explanation about what it was and everything that went into it. Uh, one thing led to another. There was, I wrote, uh, I had just a wonderful group of people that were very happy and accommodating to be Im- accommodating to be interviewed. And after it was written, I was lucky enough to find a publisher and it wasn't, wasn't the first one I uh, tried to engage. It's amazing. You write to, uh, you try to, uh, contact university presses that uh, also have, as part of their publishing offerings, they, they do have music things. And they, they write back, ah, we, it doesn't fit in our needs, doesn't this and that. The typical things that authors get. Uh, I did get in contact with one literary agent, sent him a draft, and this may be typical too. I, I really love it, but I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I've heard that myself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's it's a big world, and you got to you got to be really lucky to get anybody to publish you, and not have to self-publish. And there's nothing wrong with self-publishing, but it's better off if there's someone that also is even in, is already in the business, even if they're small. Yep. Here I am. <laughs> so uh, when you I, you mentioned uh, interviewing people, and, and that's something I want to ask you about before we get to the bulk of the book. But like when you were approaching people, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you at least made a, a nascent effort to, to interview Bob Dylan. I mean, no, you didn't because nobody gets to interview him except for like one person every four years or something. But I assume that you would at least put the put the feeler out there, like just in case. I, I didn't bother. Are you doing- <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been around enough people who have a long association with Dylan to just just know why why waste my time. Right. And even, even if I did, that's not the stuff that that even if Bob was in a mood to be helpful, that he wouldn't necessarily remember details or even tell you the truth. <laughs> well, that's 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 <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, this is a guy that made stuff up in his own autobiography. So he might, he might depending on what kind of mood he was in. So, yeah. yeah I, but the, there's always a germ of truth in, in most of well, what he Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. But um, no, I, I didn't I, I didn't feel that was fruitful. But were there people that you reached out to that just were not interested? Or generally were people, like, ready to talk about? Everybody was fine. The only one that I wasn't able to talk with and I made um, – Three tries through management was Mark Knopfler. Okay. Uh, even the, the third time I said, well, I'm going to, I think this is in an interview that's come out uh, in, in um, the bridge, maybe the new issue, the um, contact I made with Knopfler's current manager. And I did interview his manager from the time infidels was done. Right, he, right. he couldn't have been more helpful. Mm-hmm. He was great. Knopfler's current manager said, it's not the kind of thing that Mark usually does. Well, I seized on the word usually <laughs> and kept going. And um, 
you know, when they, when I sent the draft of the thing and they said, no, Mark doesn't want to do it. They usually became never does it in this case. So, mm-hmm. and that's, that's fine. It would have been helpful, but I, I, I think we can figure out enough of the story. Yes. Uh, in terms of the how you put the book together, it's organized by basically the order in which he did the songs. Now, of course, mm-hmm. he jumped around a lot. How did you come about? How did you decide that that was, the, in, in your mind, the best way to organize this material is just to kind of go through this song, this song, this song? Obviously, obviously Bob jumped around a bit, but generally it's in the order of how the, the, the record was recorded or the songs were recorded. How did you decide to, to do it that way? It was a, f- a fairly easy thought process and not one that much time was spent with once the, once the key to how to do it presented itself. I, I've read other books where it goes day by day. Right. So songs that are done over seven days, you're, you're skipping back 40 pages to find out where you left off. And, right. and I, I didn't want to do that. I, it was, it was better. The thinking was it was better to do it song by song. And with, within the chapter on the song, you could, you could do the chronology for that particular song. You just mentioned uh, Mark Knopfler. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I mean, Dylan has worked with celebrity or name producers sort of sparingly. Obviously, Daniel Lanois is the name that most people think of. But, I mean, he worked with Jerry Wexler for Slow Train Coming. But generally, he, he hasn't. I mean, he has not worked with a producer, as far as I know, in the whole of the 21st century. Uh, this, you know, we all know who Jack Frost is, and there's no other names attached to these things. And do you have any insight as to why he seems to occasionally want to work with a producer who, I don't, I, I don't want to use the phrase on his level, but I can't think of a better phrase. It, it's obviously he wants to work with someone who is a fellow musician, as Mark Knopfler was, or as Daniel Lanois was. Do you get any idea why he maybe figures is is it that he's coming out of a period where maybe the last couple of records didn't work the way he wanted them to, and so he's got to maybe hand it over to somebody of a little more authority. Can you have any insight on that? It, it could have been. Uh, now we're, now we're in the aspect of, of trying to get, trying to guess, right. Yeah, no, right. Uh, which, which did my best to avoid that in the book. And I, right. I, I, I think I did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, if I had to guess, I would guess has more self-confidence now mm-hmm. and has been through so much knows what he wants in the studio, knows the musicians, uh, so he doesn't need a producer to go recruit extra players, knows that with a good engineer, uh, if he, can, he can verbalize this kind of sound and atmosphere he wants for it. And I guess the, the last outside guy he had was Lanois. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, read the songs about the arguments in the parking lot right. and nearly coming to blows and, and all that <laughs> stuff. But, I would think I would have thought the Don was experience was enough to uh, shower him on producers, producers, but time out of mind was so successful that that, that perhaps was a motivation to when he finally decided he was indeed going to make another album because that wasn't automatic that he was going to do that at the time. Um, not time out of mind. Oh, mercy. He'd work with oh, no mercy, mercy. Yeah. when he was uh, going to put out time out of mind. He he wanted to give himself every opportunity to have it be successful. I would guess. I, I thought about that myself. Is that you know, no one, no public artist is, no commercial artist is completely immune to commercial pressures. Uh, even even someone as his huge a figure as Dylan and I, you know, we remembered back when he did interviews for Shot of Love, and he said that he felt about Shot of Love, the way he felt about Blonde on Blonde, which is about as complimentary as he's ever going to be to himself. And yet Shot of Love was pretty much a commercial failure, uh, artistically. No, not, the, not, not really. I mean, it all wasn't? Those, all, those, all those albums did okay. Well, I, I mean, compared to like, like Slow Train Coming, I'm thinking of. And I have to wonder if he felt like, all right, these songs are something a little different, and I really want to make sure... This thing, as you said, has a chance maybe at a at a greater life. So I'm going to go and go after Mark Knopfler. And also, I have to wonder too if it's just a organizational thing. Is that he's hearing a sound that he wants to achieve, and it's easier to hand it over to somebody else and say, "This is what I want. Go get these guys." As opposed to like literally him having to do it himself. I mean, he's busy with a lot of other things. Well, from what I understand, without finding any documentation on this, is it was purely his idea to find 
either a Knopfler or a Zappa or a David Bowie or uh, Elvis Costello. It was kind of uh, a producer merry-go-round before he settled on Knopfler. So I don't think it was record company pressure. I mm-hmm. think it was purely whatever his thought process and what his desires were at that particular time. I cannot imagine Frank Zappa producing Bob Dylan. I just had my, my head can't wrap myself <laughs> around that. I mean, David Bowie, oh. I could see it. Elvis Costello, certainly. But uh, I, and I think yeah. Elvis Costello got sick around that time. I think uh, that's one of the reasons he didn't get it. But I'm, I certainly, uh, Knopfler is one of my favorite musicians and songwriters these days. So I think that was, if not a marriage made in heaven, it was, it was certainly, it certainly was a good marriage, even though Dylan kind of once Knopfler went on tour, uh, <laughs> just tinkered to his heart's content with yeah. uh, <laughs> what was left at that time. So, but it's still, it still has Knopfler's feel in it. They certainly seem to have a, a mutual admiration society. I mean, you, you, in the book, there's a lot of, you have direct quotes from them talking back and forth. And there's a very easy informality. It sounds like he got along a lot better with Knopfler, like you said, like he did with Lenoir. Like he talks about, like you mentioned, he's getting into fights with Lenoir. But Knopfler, it seemed, it seemed like they just had an easier rapport. Well, you know, the, the things about Lenoir, and that's, that's stuff we read. We weren't there. Uh, the reality of actually what goes on, I was in the grocery industry, and um, we would go visit our stores, and you'd go in and you'd say to somebody, maybe in the produce department, how are you doing? How you been since last? Oh, great. Uh, look look over here. This tomato looks like it's out of line. Uh, just, and, and that becomes, man, that guy came in, and he ripped me from one side to the other. And this is, So stories that are told and the stories we hear – uh, are are not even a, a a thousandth of what is true. Right, right. <laughs> so you got to be careful. They're good stories. I mean, never get in the way of a good story. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Print the legend and all that. Right. So right, yeah. Right. <laughs> so all right. So what, something I was interested in, and I don't know whether you agree with this assessment or not, and 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 uh, so I'll, but I'll just say it anyway. So I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that in 1983, Dylan is at a real crossroads in his career, and that. You know, he would still go on to be a major act, of course. But once MTV really took hold, which is, you know, 83 is right at the precipice of MTV just taking over everything. That him and Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones, all of his contemporaries would be kind of shoved aside for more video-friendly acts. Uh, you know, the, we all know who we're talking about in the, in the 80s. And it, I think it took Dylan a little while to re- regain his creative footing. I mean, after Infidels, there were a bunch of records that were not terribly popular, uh, both creative, both uh, sales-wise and critically. Um, do you think that if Infidels had been... Again, this is hard to, to have like an alternate reality and guess what might have happened. But do you think that if Infidels had been a different record, if it had not been the record that ended up being produced and maybe it had featured some of the songs that he left off, that might've been a different outcome. And that infidels in some ways feels like he gave it a really great shot and it didn't quite come out the way he hoped. And so then it went, you know, he sort of disappeared for a little while as much as somebody like Bob Dylan can disappear, but he was just not, he was just not the, he was just not as much of an, of a draw, probably because of times were moving on. Do you think Infidels could have changed that if it had been a different record? It could have been a well. That's that's such a big if and such a big right. hypothetical. Uh, I, I think we can only deal with the record that's there. Mm. And one of the reasons the record is the way it is, and the the things that we like and intrigue us weren't included in it, had something to do with a couple things. When I when we write about Foot of Pride in the book, which was started out as too late or it's too late, and went through you know fifty different permutations, both in writing it and recording it, I don't think he was ever satisfied with it. He never got to the point where he envisioned it. And he's the artist, and I'll give him pre- credit for even given some of the stuff he's put out. If something really he really doesn't like or he doesn't really feel it's a song or it hasn't reached what its potential was, he'll, he'll leave it sit. Now, luckily we have the bootleg series that's letting other people say, well, I don't, I don't know about that. And I think <laughs> it's pretty good. I don't know what could have been wrong with blind Willie McTell, but he didn't see it. You know, Dylan's got a reputation. Again, I haven't been in his company, but he certainly has a reputation for being quirky 
<laughs> so he goes with his gut, whatever it is. Sometimes he doesn't have confidence in things like any other normal human being. And he gives it his best shot. Infidels, as as we write, has has does have a certain kind of unity to it. Mm-hmm. And I can even understand the title infidels in my own imaginary play world here. The the other thing that, that impacted the album and the song selection was the technology. It was still the vinyl age, even though this was a digital recording. And that pretty much you had 22 to 24 minutes on the side. You could get, uh, it was Blood on the Tracks. One of the albums was like 52 minutes, which really, really pressed it. Uh, so CDs, uh, I think there weren't many CDs at that time. No. The first big selling CD was Brothers in Arms, which was uh, a year or two after this. So it was limited by technology, probably limited by his feeling that he had not accomplished what he wanted to in the song. And, and on one of the tapes, you can hear him saying on the next to the last take of foot of pride, this song has given me more trouble than any in my career. <laughs> um, ah. So that's the way it, that's the way it went. Uh, if they, if they had had the CD capability and maybe they could have looked at it further, we've got 20 more minutes we could do here. How, how could we make it make sense? Um, you can't put everything on it. You can't put uh, Tell Me on there. You could have put Julius and Ethel on there. It's a nice rock number. <laughs> uh, maybe the world will get to hear that someday. It's not uh, not going not to move mountains, but it's, no. it's, it's, it certainly is a straight-ahead rock and roll song. And Death is Not the End, which uh, is, uh, as another group of podcasters said, is, Death is Not the End is a threat rather than a song. Um, <laughs> The uh, the original recording, not the one that's on uh, Down in the Groove, Down in the Grave, um, was like seven minutes long. Oh, and it wow. just fades out with the, a chorus that uh, full force uh, backing vocalist just doing not the end. No, no. And it, it, it sounds awful to talk about, but it really works well. Interesting. Okay. They have such a sweet sound considering the grimness of those lyrics. (laughs) It's such a burning flesh of man. And then you've got these angelic people going, no, it's it's such a weird song. (laughs) So, so you mentioned foot of pride and, and having, having read the book, I get the sense that you don't come out and say it, but I get the sense from reading your book that uh, to you foot of pride is the biggest missed opportunity from those sessions, not so much Blind Willie McTell. I mean, did, is that, am I correct in that assessment? And uh, or is that right? Missed opportunity is more of an unrealized, tremendous amount of effort. I don't know the, the, the version that was on the bootleg series one to three certainly was good. And uh, it's, it really hits you between the eyes and uh, such a delivery and such a torrent of words, but, there's so much more when when you in researching you get to hear all the all the attempts at it and all the different verses and you read all the different written verses and you see I think I think maybe the artist got confused because it wasn't uh, the final thing where he's got a brother named James it wasn't uh, wasn't that toward until towards the end hmm. it was he was had a brother named Paul hang out at the Cafe Royale. <laughs> He's got a brother he loved, like the spirit of the wild dove. Yeah, all these. He probably confused himself. I'm guessing that no producer, no matter who it is, Knopfler, Lanois, anybody, ever touches the lyrics, ever makes a suggestion. It's they wait for Bob to bring them the lyrics and then say, how best to put this, how is this best going to sound? But I get the sense that, they, because as I'm reading your book and he's going through, I mean, yeah, the, the, the sheer amount of pencil mileage that went into Foot of Pride. Mm-hmm. It, it seems amazing to me that the, the, the Knopfler or someone doesn't have the ability to step in and say, well, maybe we could change, but maybe that's just completely verboten. That's not their job. Right. It's not their job. Right. right, right. There's, 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 there's the greatest lyricist ever right. <laughs> sitting uh, or standing 20 feet away from you, and you're going to say, well, I think this word would work better. 
Yeah, I could see. I don't right. think so. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe you'd say it once, but uh, can imagine the look you'd get. Yeah, <laughs> even if it's a good suggestion. Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah, <laughs> I can, I can Noth- imagine so. Knopfler's a pretty good lyricist. Yeah, I mean, Foot of Pride. It's it's so funny because I remembered hearing that on the Bootleg series, and just mm-hmm. my head snapped back. I just I couldn't believe it. Doesn't sound like anything else he's done. Nope. I mean, it doesn't nope. have a melody to it. It's just a beat, and. Obviously, he has on some level accepted the wisdom by others that Blind Willie McTell is worthy of being included in the corpus because he's done it in concert. Uh, he performed it for Martin Scorsese at the Grammys a couple of years ago. It's a song that he, I almost feel like he's sort of shrugging me and said, eh, you know what, that was pretty good. Let, let's, let's bring it in. But Foot of Pride, he has just completely abandoned. I mean, he's never done it live. Nope. The only other live version that exists is when Lou Reed covered it at the 30th anniversary concert. So that's amazing to me that he could put that much work into this song and then it just gets dropped down the memory hole and it's essentially gone forever until Bootleg series releases. And the, the Lou Reed thing was, was funny because that I can't remember what he was going to do, but it was a last second change. Oh, I didn't know that. To do Foot of Pride. And where I was at the concert, where I was sitting, I was kind of the side and the back of the artist. So you could see the lyrics, the teleprompter. Oh, right, right, On right. the stage. And you could see Reed just picking his way through the <laughs> lyrics and squinting at them one by one as they came, <laughs> came by. And it's not a bad version. No, he does. I, I was remember being really impressed that he did it. You know, I was like, wow, that's an obscure pick to do. Read that. I thought that was, that was really impressive. So, so you relate the story of what, why Dylan changed the title uh, from surviving in a ruthless world to infidels. And that's of course, from an interview that he did, I believe with Kurt Loder and for Rolling Stone and, you know, us, us diehard fans, uh, we like to ascribe deep motives to every move he makes, every utterance, every gesture, uh, every song, you know, oh, the, his last album was called Tempest. Is that, that was Shakespeare's last to play. Mm-hmm. Does that mean it's over? You know, we, we keep thinking he's dropping these clues for us. But that story that he tells is, shows how arbitrary some of these decisions he makes can be. And, I mean, by the way, I love that the book is called that because it feels like such a wonderfully inside straight for fans like us that you're like, oh, yeah, okay. And I feel like Surviving in a Ruthless World is a better title because, to me, it, I, you make the argument that Infidels works as a title in the book. Mm-hmm. You talk about that. I really like Surviving in a Ruthless World because, to me, it feels more like what he's talking about on the record is that sort of thing. But I also know that as a Dylan fan, I tend to lean towards liking – the alternate version because I'm simply so familiar with the original one. And I think that's something that Dylan fans always have to deal with is that, Oh, here's this new flashy thing that, you know, I'm only learning about a couple of years ago, as opposed to infidels, which I've you know owned for 20 years. Um, I mean, Joe, you think that you think ultimately infidels is kind of a better title for the record? Well, again, it's what we have. Um, It's, it's the artist's choice. I think surviving in a ruthless world is probably too much of a message. I think infidels is is probably more opaque. Definitely. And and who knows what that means? I've I've got a theory, and I I don't think it's unrelated to the concept of surviving in a ruthless world because mm. to survive you have to recognize the world for what it is. And one of the things that was available in the archives were a pair of notebooks that were contemporaneous to the writing of Infidels and the, the production until it was released. And in one of them, Dylan wrote pretty straightforward. I'm not sure what the purpose was, uh, but his view of the world and that the world uh, and man, and man is not essentially good. Uh, and if good happens, it's almost by an accident. And, you tie that into the songs that are on there, License to Kill, uh, Joker Man, maybe, certainly Foot of Pride with all that cast of characters, uh, which wasn't on the album, I understand. Mm. Uh, Sweetheart Like You, uh, there's kind of a malevolent spirit in there to me that somebody's trying to get somebody to do something that they don't necessarily want to do <laughs> or be sweet-talked. Uh, so... Nearest I could come to it, and I don't think it's necess- it's not the only answer, and it's probably not the answer, but it's a- an answer or an approach, 
is that mankind is really the infidel in, in terms of uh, not belonging or being harmful or a- antithetical to the world we all inherited. The the cover, the, the infidel's cover, which is that really close-up <laughs> shot of Bob with yeah. the sunglasses. And, and the, you know, the word infidels is in giant type. And it feels as though that is Bob Dylan sort of calling us infidels. Surviving in a ruthless world to me is kind of warmer. It's more sympathetic. It's sort of saying, hey, we're all trying to survive in a ruthless world. But infidels feels more, as you said, it's more vague, but it also does feel more accusatory in its own way. Because like, I don't know, am I an infidel? I don't know what Bob's referring to in that. I could be. Um, I, I am curious. I love to ask this question of people because obviously Bob Dylan is the guy with his name on the record. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, the decision is going to be his. And if the record is good, he gets all the credit. And if the record is bad, he gets all the blame. And th- he has to live with it. So obviously, um, as much as we can love songs like Foot of Pride or Caribbean Wind or Girl from the Red River Shore, if he ain't feeling it, he ain't feeling it. And, you know, what, who other, whose other choice can it be? That said, I'm just sort of interested in your opinion. Do you feel mm-hmm. as though an album – I'm going to say, I don't want to use the word better. I guess you, would you prefer in the style? Would an album be, I guess a Dylan album, the best songs that he came up with at any given session? Or do you feel as though you would rather hear something that has a coherent whole to it? And the, the, what I'm getting at is like one of the songs that we all know is from the bootleg series is tell me. And I love that song. I absolutely love Tell Me. I think it's beautifully performed, warm, impish, uh, and it, it's very unusual in Dylan's canon. And I love the, the the idea behind it of you're meeting somebody new and it's like, tell me everything. I think that's such a wonderfully open-hearted, warm way to approach getting to know somebody. At the same time, I cannot picture how it would fit on Infidels. I, it just doesn't fit there, I, and yet I hate the, the idea that it, that it's just that it was just jettisoned until the bootlegs here. Well, I think Dylan said somewhere along the line that uh, often you have too many songs and right. you can't use them all. I, I tell me is a nice little—I don't want to call it ditty because it, it's more deserving of something than that. Um, but it's—you're right—it's it's it's of lighter weight than the other things that are there. One of the, one of the feelings that was reflected in, in everything I looked and everything I listened to that perhaps tell me uh, at least the the writing of it uh, was kind of a flip side to the ideas that were in Sweetheart Like You. Mm-hmm. In Sweetheart, you have uh, somebody, probably a male figure, telling a woman things that she should know. Uh, to whatever end, you know, who knows? A woman like you should be at home. Tell me is the flip side of that asking the woman mm-hmm. to tell him. So they're, they're kind of like bookends, but I don't think they would have worked as bookends on the album. Well, maybe they could have. Every, anything can be made to work. Uh, things have, um, I don't know if you said this or not, but once things are done, they have an air of inevitability to them. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, that's the way it is, so that's the way yeah. it had to be. Yeah. Yep. Okay. yeah. It, that said, I mean, I, it does seem unbelievable that over the course of uh, two more records that were just hodgepodges of stuff he had laying around that Tell Me was not deemed good enough to, say, be put on Knocked Out Loaded or Down in the Groove. You know, Death is Not the End. Let's get that in there, but not Tell Me. That seems kind of like, all right, Bob. You know, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Empire Burlesque um, was certainly, to me, not as strong as Infidels. But it wasn't that bad. I mean, the production made it worse than yes. it might have been. He, um, you know, he worked hard on that one, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he yeah. didn't didn't work solely in one studio. Uh, maybe technology got in the way of uh, New Danville Girl being on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, New I don't Danville think I... Girl, New Danville Girl, to me, is a, much stronger than Brownsville Girl. Okay. I don't think I really knew that Clean Cut Kid was done for Infidels. Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that before. And then it ended up on Empire Ballet. I could see it on Infidels. I could see it fitting quite well uh, on there. There's a lot of lines in License to Kill that feel like overlap with Clean Cut Kid. So I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. So is Infidels your, your favorite Dylan album? Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. It certainly intrigued me, uh, <laughs> obviously. Because who else writes 266 pages of a single <laughs> album? Right. Uh, and there's, there's more than the songs, as, as you read. Uh, we talking to uh, 
choice of the studio and the technology that was used in the studio and what that meant and how the production team came together and, and, you know, the, what Bill Graham was doing in the middle of all this, I don't think it ever come back before and still don't exactly know. And that's a shame that Graham's not with us to find out what happened there. Mm. Uh, but as far as favorite, if I had to pick and I, I was asked this as part of my oral examinations way back for the uh, my master's degree, and I'd still have the same answer. I think it would be John Wesley Harding. Okay. Just because of what it was and when it came out, and the nature of the songs, simple as they were. That's it's a- such a it's such a deep album, presented in a small way, <laughs> including the poem on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Story on the back. It, that fits perfectly with another thing I wanted to ask you was, if do you think there are any other albums, Dylan albums, that, that could withstand this level of, of scrutiny, like a whole book written about them? And John Wesley Harding, I feel like, is an album that couldn't, not because it's not deep, but because supposedly it was recorded with the absolute most minimum of fuss imaginable. There right. was no, It was like a couple of days, and then bang, they were done. So, I mean, you couldn't get 260 pages out of John Wesley Harding because there just wasn't that much to say. Yeah. Unless, there, unless there's a box of writings. Right. Uh, back somewhere and it shows the songs evolving. But um, yeah, maybe if the archives ever reopens, I'll go back and look at that time period. Do you think there's any other, uh, do you think that there's a, another album out there that could, that would be worthy of this kind of digging? I mean, again, a lot of it depends on what's there. Uh, but we know that there are other records of his that were, had tortured births. Uh, I mean, do you, are there any that you would love to hear some, now you write it obviously, but would you, would, is there another album that you would love to read a book about that I'd like, I'd going like through somebody, this, this kind of detail? I'd like somebody to do something further with time out of mind. Uh, I, I, there obviously, there were a lot of draft lyrics for some of those songs. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, there were different takes of them because they showed up on uh, at least a couple showed up. Well, at least one of them did on Telltale Signs. Mm-hmm. Modern times. I don't know if there were a lot of alternates for that. Yeah, we're not hearing much about these these Mm-mm. later records. We're not well, hearing much in the way of. It's another thing with Dylan as producer. Yeah, there's much greater control. <laughs> yep, stuff's getting locked away, and we're not not finding out about it. So, the one time they the one time they went out of their comfort zone was uh, when they recorded uh, "Tell Old Bill" mm-hmm. in the movie North Country. And they went to studio in Conowingo, Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden you got 13 versions of Tell Old Bill that are out there. <laughs> That's a- uh, has Infidels, since you've learned so much about it, does it the the album as released finish as a finished album? Like, does it suffer in your mind uh, in in that it's lesser because you know what could have been on there, or can no. you just enjoy it as as it as it is? I can enjoy it as it is. I think, luckily, again, uh, the other stuff is out there to listen to. But as as a product, this is, for better or for worse, worse the story that the artist wanted to present us with. And I can accept that, and I can enjoy it on those terms. Mm. So it's it's been rumored that the next Bootleg Series release is going to be the complete Infidel Sessions. That's what we're hearing. And so from what you've heard through your research and your book, I mean, is there – what material are you – the most excited that the rest of us will finally get to hear. Cause some of the stuff you described, I, I am dying to get my ears on, but I don't know whether it'll be on the bootleg <laughs> series or not. Well, I, you know, I hear the same rumors that, that everybody else does and read them. Uh, I, from just from the research, I don't, I don't know that you could do a release of the complete infidel sessions. I think, I think much, a lot of it's too esoteric. Mm-hmm. There's some, there's some goodies in there some nuggets yeah, you could grab maybe 15 to 20 songs out of there um, and make a nice little set. But, you know, maybe as a part of something else, maybe a, maybe a broader look into uh, a couple of years in his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I'd like to, it'd be great if people could hear the evolution of uh, Too Late to Foot of Pride. Yeah, I'm um, dying to hear an alternate version of Foot of Pride. I mean, as much as I love the one I know, <laughs> I'm dying to hear alternates takes of it. It, it, it. It followed an interesting path. Yeah. Now, maybe someday somebody will put out 14, 15 complete takes of <laughs> Too Late to Foot a Pride. And <laughs> people will listen to it once, and that'll be the end of it. You know, these, these things have to have a place in the marketplace, too. Right. Much as, much as uh, 
uh, aficionados want to hear uh, everything. And they right. did that. They did that with the uh, cutting edge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't think you just you just don't have that same availability of uh, focus sessions and infidels. They they spanned a month, and some days were just goofing around, and there was no Bob Johnson to say uh, visions of Johanna take four. Right. They just they just they just started playing, and the song came up, and it stopped, and something you know. So it's a little harder to do, and I, I don't think you'd want to do that. That that's been done. I think uh, while certainly I'm a I wouldn't use the word completist, but I'm more obsessive than the average bear. So I want to hear everything. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't. I don't think I'd run a business like that. Right, <laughs> right, right. I, I, diminish, I, diminishing returns. I love the part in the book where you mentioned that he, in between uh, working on the Infidels songs, they they did a couple of Christmas songs, and Bob even has the comment about, "Oh, these are going to be great for my Christmas album." And of course, that was a joke. And then yes. flash forward to two thousand nine. <laughs> it's like he, it's all in his head. It all services. At some point, you know, I'd love to hear that material, too. Well, to call the, the Christmas songs and the infidel sessions uh, half-baked is to do an injustice to the term <laughs> half-baked. It's, uh, like I said, it was a marvelous read. I, 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 I finished the whole book in just a couple of days. I mean, I'm, I'm in a, as an obsessive fan as, as it gets. And so just reading all the stuff and, and getting an insight into his creative process is, is amazing. And I, I'm... I'm fascinated as to why Bob at this point in his life, maybe is, who knows, he's allowing this. He's allowing a peek inside of what was in his head at any given moment. Uh, he's a very private man, understandably. And it's sort of interesting that he's, he's giving us all this uh, access that we can start figuring this stuff out. But I mean, it was an absolutely marvelous book. I'm so glad it exists. And, well, thank you. Uh, it was just great. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for, for doing this, Terry. It was marvelous um, to talk to you. I was happy to do that, and I'm I'm happy all the material is there to be reviewed. Somewhere, Dylan, whether it's a sense of legacy or a sense of cleaning things up and not leaving things undone, for whatever reason, the archives were established, and the bootleg series has been allowed to progress, hopefully, to 16 issues. <laughs> we can all have gratitude for that. Absolutely. So, of course, everybody, I highly recommend that you pick up Surviving in a Ruthless World, Bob Dylan's Voyage to Infidels by Terry Gantz. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on free his publisher's website. You can get it any place you can get books. Order it. You will absolutely not be disappointed. It is just a marvelous read. Uh, thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Terry. Thanks so, for course- the opportunity. Oh, no problem at all. So, of course, everybody, if you want to find all the back episodes of this show, go to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, if you want to support Firewater Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. A big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krogh, and George Doherty for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Go out and buy Surviving in a Ruthless World, and we will see you later. Bye. Neil, remember we were the, the clean-cut kid from the, not the last time we were trying it, but earlier, remember, when was the first night we tried it? I want to hear that third one, the last one. It's not the one that you didn't get, one earlier than that. Okay, you got this. Okay, Tetro. We don't need any of these these takes for this one. No, I don't think so. You did, did did you hear one, Mark? Did you want to keep? No. I didn't hear one either. Boss ain't here. He gone now. He gone now. Now wait a second. Anyway.